Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 24 for December of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about super-powered ensemble groups not based on comics. And our show topics include a look at season one so far of Marvel's Runaways on Hulu and our impressions of season five of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC. And our interview this month will be with Lindy Booth, who plays Cassandra on TNT's The Librarians. And stay tuned. We may actually have a bonus episode for you later on in the month uh, with Christian Kane. He's also from The Librarians. So Librarians fans get a double feature for you about Lindy Booth in this particular episode. And I do want to let people know that there are spoilers in all of our segments for episodes that have already aired, including the interview. Now, of course, I think that goes without saying for Marvel's runaways because it's a new show, but to be honest, if you haven't been watching Marvel's agents of shield or librarians at this point, I'm not sure you're going to tune into those segments anyway, because they're so far into their runs, but uh, this might be, something that people might want to skip around on. But I'm really looking forward to these topics. Well, I will say about the librarians, they're short seasons. Even though season four is getting ready to start, they're only 10 episode seasons. So you really couldn't jump in. (laughs) You could do it. Yeah. And oddly enough, I noticed this as I was putting together the notes, there actually are some common threads in uh, some of these topics that we're talking about. Obviously, Marvel comes into play with both of our show topics and the superpowered ensemble groups not based on comics is sort of tangentially related. But even Lindy Booth has a connection that I'll mention later when I introduce uh, our interview segment. So stay tuned for that. But if you need to avoid spoilers for certain segments or you're just skipping around a little bit for your topics of interest, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Non-comics supergroups. 241. Runaways. 1716 Agents of Shield 3844 The Librarian's Interview 5527 All right and we're starting off with our discussion topics which is an interesting one supergroups that are not based on comics on TV Now interestingly there's a bunch of examples of non-comics related superpowered groups in the movies but we actually had to dig around a little bit and found some real gems on TV historically and a little bit more contemporarily that have these supergroups similar to the runaways and they're not from Marvel or DC or even some of the more obscure comic titles. So these are some interesting uh, shows that we came up with that have some really interesting superpowers that we're going to highlight. And I think for the most part, they're all pretty good shows. Most of them I missed the first time around. So 
nice to come back and revisit. Right. And I actually had to do a little bit of research on some shows that I hadn't seen, but they're still worthy of discussing. And I even actually tuned into one of the uh, topics that I brought into specifically so I could discuss it on this uh, discussion topic. And I'll go ahead and start, Dave, because there's one show that is probably one of the older ones we'll be discussing called Mutant X, which was a syndicated program out of Toronto that ran from 2001 to 2004. There were three seasons of it where they had a superpowered group that was based on genetic manipulation by government forces. And their supergroup was led by, as there often is, there's this mentor character or a doctor of some sort. And here we have a biogeneticist who formed the supergroup to atone for the government experiments that he took part in. And I thought that was an interesting twist on it. Victor Webster of Continuum is in it, looking much younger and smoldering quite a bit. <laughs> but I want to go through here, when, as we mentioned these different shows, Dave, and highlight maybe one character who has a cool superpower that we can highlight. And in Mutant X, the one I thought was the coolest was Jesse Kilmartin, who can alter the density of his body. So he can be a wisp of smoke, or he can be you know, hard as a rock to become an obstacle to something. So I thought that was a pretty cool superpower. But this is a show, Mutant X, that actually Marvel put together. So you I think, okay, it's not based on comics. They were basically trying to get around the rule of Fox owning X-Men by doing a show that was sort of related to it with another company. So I thought that was an interesting little behind-the-scenes note to that particular show. Yeah, take that, Marvel. <laughs> or take that, Fox. <laughs> uh, Fox, there you go. All right, well, uh, for me, my first choice, it's a natural segue from yours, and it is Dark Angel, which was on Fox as well. And again, another story of genetic engineering, and Jessica Alba plays the lead character, Max Guevara. And as children, they were you know, products of this uh, genetic engineering experiment to develop these super soldiers. And the interesting thing here is that they're all different varieties of super soldiers. Now, certainly she and the other X-5s, which was her designation, look human. Now, you know, she certainly had enhanced speed, strength, intelligence, uh, and what was cool about her is she just wanted to blend into the woodwork. She didn't want to use any of her powers unless, you know, maybe she was short on the rent one month. <laughs> but they also developed other soldiers that, for instance, could stay submerged underwater. So they had gills, for instance. So it was pretty cool in that regard. But, you know, for the most part, we followed Max Guevara, and also uh, her brother, and I'm making air quotes because to a certain extent, they looked at each other as brother and sister because what happens in the show, they all escape eventually from the facility, and now they're living in the uh, post-apocalyptic Seattle area, just trying to stay under the radar of this shadow government that was running the experiment, so... Dark Angel, 2000 to 2002, if you missed it the first time, two seasons. They are long seasons, 22 and 23 episodes, but well worth your time if you haven't seen them. Right, and I, th I guess this special superpower would be the Gill guy. That sounds pretty neat. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that 
when you first brought that one up to me uh, as we were discussing this ahead of time, I was like, is that really a super group? But yeah, it sounds like it. they do have different powers for different uh, members of the of the team. That's pretty cool. Now, the next one I want to talk about is another show I haven't actually seen, but I thought definitely fits the bill. And that's Alphas, which was on sci-fi from 2011 to 2013. It only lasted for two seasons and in fact ended quite abruptly. So there was a team of powered individuals named Alphas who were led by, once again, a neurologist, psychologist, doctor character. And their job was actually to hunt down criminal alphas, people who are using their powers for criminal means. So that was the premise of that one. I thought one of the cooler powers that showed up in the group was Nina Thoreau, who was played by Laura Manel, a pre-Van Helsing <laughs> Laura Manel. Her power in this show was hyper-induction, where she could push people to do what she wanted to do. So it was kind of a form of mind control. And like I said, alphas, from the people I've discussed this with that have seen the show, it was cut short far too soon. All right. Now, you know, on the one hand, Heroes, the first incarnation, not Heroes Reborn, ran from 2006 to 2010. You know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of the quintessential show that we're really talking about here. Because they do sort of function as a team. It's certainly not based on a comic. But Claire Bennett, who's the cheerleader, and there's that mantra, save the cheerleader, save the world, which is <laughs> yeah. kind of kind of funny. But from the opening episode, when we see her in her cheerleading outfit up on this high platform, she just jumps off, breaks her arm, oh, horribly, yanks <laughs> it back into place, tries it again. And I guess what we learn about her is she's indestructible. But the other characters that we're introduced to as well, Greg Grunberg, who seems to be in everything, certainly Alias, he was a main character. He was even in the – he was the pilot in the Lost Pilot episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he can read minds. Uh, there's one character that can fly. But my favorite was Hero. Mine too. Who could manipulate space and time. And – Aside from the fact that his power was the coolest, he was just cool. He was like a nerdy character, so he was like a nerd's hero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, here's just one of those shows that it really started off strong, in my opinion. And by the end of the second season, it was really fading. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and I just I just left it after season two. Yeah, me too. It unraveled quite quickly, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, this kind of shows you that superpowered teams that aren't based on comics, they have a, a higher hill to climb because they don't have an established property and a built-in fan base. So they have a little bit tougher job to do in terms of garnering an audience. But one show that slipped under my radar and I just can't believe no one ever told me about because I did catch the first couple of episodes and loved it and can't wait to maybe watch more as time allows. And that's Misfits, a British series that aired on their channel E4 from 2009 to 2013. There were five seasons of this show, so it definitely had its nice run, uh, even though, you know, it was six to eight episodes, as British series often are. But this one was a little bit different because it wasn't a team of superheroes. It was just a team of superpowered individuals. And in this case, they were criminals performing community service while on probation. And suddenly they're struck by this supernatural lightning. This storm comes out of nowhere and they emerge with powers. 
but they are sort of like reluctant superheroes because of course they want nothing to do with saving the world. They're just trying to, in some cases, cover up their own crimes or hide their powers so that they're not discovered because, you know, when you're on probation, one wrong move and you're back in the slammer. So I thought it was interesting that this is a series that did star Ewan Rayon from Game of Thrones uh, and also most more recently from Inhumans. And so seeing him in this series was kind of cool as a very shy superhero that can turn invisible. But my favorite superhero has to be Alicia Daniels, who is very comfortable with her sexuality before the superpowers are bestowed upon her. And so as these characters find out, their superpowers tend to come from something in their real life. So because she's enjoys being sexy, her superpower is she can touch people and send them into a sexual frenzy, which doesn't sound like a very useful (laughs) skill, but it can come in handy for a distraction, I would imagine. But I can't wait to check this series out. And uh, some people agreed with me once I effused about it on social media that it was one that definitely needs to be checked out if you haven't. Yeah. Well, unlike you, I have heard of it. I just haven't watched it yet. So I I think I'll certainly check it out. I mean, look, I I am fond of the reluctant hero scenario. And and one of the things I really like about it is that for the most part, these are people that know – either literally or just instinctively that somebody is going to be out there that wants to abuse their power and they just want to stay away from that person. So, all right. Well, the last show we're going to talk about is another show that I came to late and that's the 4400, which ran from 2004 to 2007. And these are, you know, 4400 individuals that randomly disappeared and now have suddenly reappeared. With powers. <laughs> With powers. And and the one that I just want to talk a little bit about, because, again, it's one of those powers. And the other thing that I've noticed with some of these shows, not all of them, but there's this moral and ethical dilemma that accompanies the power. And Sean Farrell is one of the teenagers that returns. So, number one, he's a teenager. You know, in terms of moral and ethical development, I mean, he's at the early stages of his life. And we learn, ironically, he wasn't supposed to be one of the 4,400, but nonetheless, his power enables him to heal. And in fact, we see him in the first example of this, bring a dead bird back to life. Now, having this power as an adult, would be an awesome burden, I would think. So as a teenager, it's really interesting to watch him as he you know, really grapples with the ethics involved in this power that he has. And it's a show I missed. I don't even know how I missed it. I never really even heard of it. I, I ran across it when I was searching with Wayne for some shows to consider for Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. But 4,400, definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And to be honest, there aren't a whole lot of examples beyond these six that we've brought up, but we did pose the question to our listeners on social media. So I want to share some of the answers they gave. One of my favorite ones came from Twitter. Richard mentioned a show called Three Inches, where the it's kind of a comedy because the, the main guy can move objects with his mind, but only three inches at a time, which is where the show gets its title and a bunch of the other superheroes in that show also have very minuscule superpowers that seem fairly useless. So that's kind of fun. 
Midnight Geek also said on Twitter, Heroes as his choice. So definitely picked that one up. Taltos took a supernatural bent and chose Buffy, Dark Angel, which you chose, obviously, but also Haven and Sanctuary. And when you think about it, some of these supernatural teams do kind of have superpowers (laughs) and they are varying. So that does definitely fit the bill. We just happen to go at it from a different angle to be a little bit more superhero like. But yes, certainly those count. On Facebook, Steve says Alphas and also Painkiller Jane, which I pointed out to him actually is a comic, but a great example nonetheless. Linda brought up the 4400, also Fringe to a certain extent because of the Cortexafan children. She brought up a 60s show called The Champions, which looks really cool. Look that one up because it's kind of like a spy thriller at the same time or like a, a clandestine operation. And then uh, a couple of people got a little confused because I know Aaron brought up Manimal just because the guy in Manimal could use different animals powers, but that's still one individual. And then my brother even brought up Greatest American Hero, <laughs> which is a another great superpower show that's not based on a comic, but just one person. I think he just wanted to post that video. <laughs> yeah. The, the gif. Yeah. And then Jada brought up Sensate, which also is true. The Sensates do have all the same power, one might say, but they also have their special skills that they bring to the group, whether it be martial arts or or whatever they they brought to the table. So some great examples from social media. So please, uh, in the future, if you'd like, we'd like to share our discussion topics ahead of time so that people can contribute. But fun topic, you know, because there's a lot of comic book shows out there, including the ones we're about to talk about. And it's nice to know that you can come up with some original ones and still have them be successful in their own little niche. And that's the key word original. That's right. (laughs) But the comic book companies do come up with some good ones. And our first show topic is one of them. I've really been enjoying Marvel's runaways on Hulu. Five episodes have aired so far. And and as Hulu sometimes does, I love this model. Instead of just dropping them all like Netflix does, Hulu sometimes will drop three episodes and then the rest of them will come out weekly and I think we've talked about that before, where it's not always great to binge watch the whole thing. Yeah. And you know what? I was convinced I was just going to think this was okay. I mean, it's a bunch of teenagers, nothing wrong with teenagers, you know, make nice, <laughs> nice living working with teenagers. But I am really digging this show. Yeah. I thought there might be a problem because of the executive producers coming from Gossip Girl as their previous show that they did, but it actually works pretty well in terms of the relationship dynamics. So yeah, I'm really enjoying it as well. It's got a 10 episode season and this discussion will cover episodes one through five. So what we've got is we've got six teenagers who cope with the aftermath of the death of their friend, Amy, and they're all children of mega wealthy parents who are also involved in their own mystery. So you've got these six teenagers who, have become estranged from each other to a certain extent because of the death of Amy. And now they're coming back together for different circumstances. And in fact, it almost seems very fortuitous and coincidental that they come together at this exact time because of what their parents are up to. But first we have Nico, who is the sister of Amy. She appears to be a Wiccan by trade. Uh, She exhibits some of her, worship rituals uh, at one point when she's almost trying to bring her sister's presence back, it seems like on the beach and her power comes about through her mother's scepter, which seems to be some sort of family heirloom that almost seems magical in that it lets the user 
make a request and it fulfills their wish. So a really cool power. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things they, they do really well here is this mystery of Amy's death. We really don't know exactly what happened. So whether it was her death that pulled them apart, we don't know. And, and certainly the cool thing with Nico is that she's got this really cool looking goth look. And then when we get through the series a little later and we realize at the time when her sister was alive, she had a totally, totally different look. Right. So it came about because of that. Yes. Cha- change in personality to a certain extent. But yeah, Amy's death is mysterious. It supposedly was a suicide as we get to see in flashbacks, but there's some seems to be some sort of question about the veracity of that. And then the main character arguably would be Alex Wilder who shared a special bond with Amy and her sister as well. Maybe sort of has feelings for Nico, I think, but now he is the one that's bringing the group back together. And Alex is the one person I don't know what his powers are or what they will be. Uh, So people who have read the comics maybe know that already, but I kind of like that. We don't know as non-comics readers. <laughs> right. I mean, I, at this point, I liken him to Sky, that that his superpower is the ability to hack into anything. And he's the computer wizard. But as you say, you know, we're learning what these different powers are. And you mentioned that he's the one that brings the kids together. And obviously, the parents have their own mystery going on. And in retrospect, when we see Alex's parents really encouraging him to get the group back together, you think, why would they want that? When we know what it is the parents are doing, the parents know what they're doing. Why (laughs) would you want your kids? Uh, You know, maybe they just think that will shield them further. No pun intended for the next show (laughs) we're going to do, but uh, I, I don't know. I found it interesting. Yeah, because they really are playing two different personalities. The personalities they have as family members of each other and then as antagonists for each other. Because certainly the parents do suspect the kids and the kids do suspect the parents of things. So, yeah, it's a very, very cool split that they have in the cast, the adults and the kids. We also have Chase, who is a jock. He's son of Spike, as you have, in, <laughs> as you wrote in the notes, because, of course, James Marsters is playing Chase's father and Spike is very demanding. As you might imagine, (laughs) he might be, he's kind of almost abusive, a little bit too heavy on the drink sometimes as well. But the more pressure he puts on him, the more remarkable it becomes when Chase starts to exhibit engineering skills of his own. And then they almost start to bond a little bit towards the end of episode five, which I thought was really cool And we get just a very small introduction to Chase's powers, quote unquote, which is his power gauntlets that he's created, which he has dubbed Fistagons. And I imagine that will be his contribution to the (laughs) supergroup. And what we do learn about his father is that he has created some, you know, I don't think we know specifically what the technology is. But whatever it is, it's made him an icon, you know, almost like a Steve Jobs type of individual. But he has invented a working, although he doesn't know it's working, time machine. Yeah, of sorts. It's more of a time viewer. Right, right. But still. A future viewer. But uh, yeah, if you think about it, the young ones do have powers that are somewhat related to their parents. I mean... 
Nico has the staff and her, her mother certainly has used it as well. Uh, Chase has the engineering gauntlets, which tie into his father's powers. We don't know what Alex is up to, but the next person I'll bring up is Carolina, who is the daughter of the head of the church of Giborim, which is kind of a cult like organization, sort of a new age religious group. And she seems to start out as a believer to a certain extent, but What's weird about her is that although she's the teenage face, the millennial face of the church, she's kind of troubled, you feel like, in the background. She's smiling through her sadness. She's not really as far into it as she would seem. And those doubts really start to arise even more when she takes off her bracelet at a party and her arms start to glow. And not only does that tie in with a sort of a painting of an angel that's in the church that her grandfather drew, but also the power of light seems to fit pretty well with a cult leader's daughter, don't you think? (laughs) I do. And that bracelet becomes really important as the episodes move on. And we find out that, you know, like at this point, you're talking about that, that she's ready to do a little rebelling on her own. So she goes to this party, she takes some drugs, she, I don't know if she drinks or not. And then she takes off. And as you said, it's this hallucinatory vision that we see. Well, that's what we're, I think they're trying to trick us. Right. Exactly. She, she took the drugs, ecstasy or whatever it was. And so the light effects seem to be something that she's experiencing as a drug effect. And the fact that she passes out lends credence to that as well. But it might've just been that the bracelet was inhibiting her powers at her parents' behest, like almost as though they knew, or at least Leslie knew that her daughter had these powers, I would think. We don't know that yet, but I'm, I'm guessing that. So she's starting to realize the truth of her situation. But the two people who are actually together from the very beginning from the group are Gert and Molly, who appear to be sisters when we first watched the episodes. But it turns out Molly is actually the youngest of the group, but also an adopted daughter of Gert's parents because her parents have died mysteriously. And again, we don't know the circumstances behind that. But even Gert, who is kind of like this feminist social justice warrior at the beginning of the show, as she starts to show interest in Chase and Chase actually agrees to be tutored in Spanish by her, you can see that she's actually got a huge crush on him. And those empowerment ideals for women sort of just go out the window she cancels the meeting <laughs> right, those three so that girls, she can go. <laughs> right. Those three girls come up to her all excited and it's like, no, nope, no meeting. Nope. Got to go tutor my uh, hunky guy in Spanish. But Gert's power that emerges is really kind of cool because it doesn't seem to be a general ability to talk to animals, but rather talk to one specific animal and have it obey her. And that's, of course, the dinosaur in the basement, <laughs> as one has. So that's I can't wait to see what comes of that because that seems to be awfully convenient and so there must be something behind that that her parents have something to do with i'm not sure right and viewers of alias will recognize her father as the tech genius in alias marshall Um, exactly so that's pretty cool she doesn't get to actually use her power in episode five where they save alex but still it's there she could have sicked the dinosaur on them i guess (laughs) on the criminals but uh, yeah, and, and in fact, the first person we get to see, I almost thought it was strange that Molly exhibited super strength powers multiple times before we saw anybody else's superpowers. But of course, the comedic element of that 
is that because she's the youngest, nobody believes her. She can't, she can't get a chance to tell them about what she's experiencing. Cause of course the only evidence that she has of it is that she'll exhibit the super strength, such as opening the doors to their parents' secret lair and then immediately fall asleep from the exertion. <laughs> so that's kind of a fun little side effect that they have. But speaking of the parents' secret meeting, these parents have their own thing going on. And we've got Alex's parents, Jeffrey Wilder, who's an ex-con. His wife is a high-powered lawyer who was instrumental in getting him out of prison. But his criminal past won't let him go. I, I find Jeffrey Wilder one of the more interesting and complex characters because we see in flashbacks that his friend in prison took the fall so that he could get out and take advantage of this financial opportunity where someone was willing to pay big bucks for attractive land. And he wants to be a partner to this person who we find out later. This person is actually someone that we're introduced to as an important person in this circle, which was kind of surprising. And yet he obviously got out of prison and reneged on his deal with the guy who took the fall for him so that he could get out early. And I think that's really interesting. What did he do and why did he renege on the deal? He still has criminal elements in his dealings with people, right? He's still willing to muscle his way through to power. Yes. Yes. And you know, for the first few episodes, we heard about this school that they were going to build the pride, which is the, the parents mysterious group. So I'm wondering, is the school to be built on this land that, that we find out about when he's in prison. Yeah. Well, I think it is, but I don't understand what it has to do with anything <laughs> or whether it's just a cover story. I don't know, but it all seems to tie together somehow eventually because the parents don't even seem to be in the same social circles. So it seems strange that they would be part of this pride organization that seems to almost be its own separate cult from Giborim, which uh, has white, clothing instead of the red robes that the pride wears. But uh, speaking of Giberim, Carolina's parents are Leslie Dean and Frank Dean, Leslie being the head of the church and Frank being sort of her arm candy and the one spouse who's not part of pride, which seems interesting. His uh, role seems to be marginalized in the extreme, not only because he was an ex heartthrob actor who's kind of down on his luck, but also because he doesn't know anything about what Leslie is doing in her secret meditation chamber, which appears to be reviving a husk of a human of some sort. You know, what the heck is up with that? Who is this guy? I mean, you know, you have his name in the notes as Jonah. I must have missed that. Now, Jonah, because he was revived at the very end of five and we got to see that it was Julian McMahon who is billed as Jonah in the credits. Okay. So now I don't know that they've said his name. But it is the same guy that tried to buy the tract of land from Jeffrey in the oh, flashback. Oh, you're right. So I can't figure out how that ties in, you know? So there's definitely some mysteries that unfold. And I love how they dole them out. Very, very small bits at a time, but enough to keep us interested and, and not too puzzled. One of the other mysteries surrounds Gert's parents, Dale and Stacy Yorks, who are aging hippies. And they're innovating some sort of serum that they stand to make a lot of money over. I think it has healing properties of some kind or medical uses of some kind, but it also seems to be a little bit dangerous to the, this serum. And I'm thinking it might have something to even do with how these kids got their powers. I'm not sure, but we'll have to see where the serum comes into play. But again, they also have that dinosaur in their basement, how that ties in, who knows, <laughs> 
but they're uh, definitely involved in biology and chemistry and genetic manipulation, probably. And then you've got the inventor family, Janet and Victor Stein. Victor Stein is, of course, James Marsters we mentioned before. Janet's, again, a more of a marginal spouse, but she does have her own side story in that she seeks solace in the arms of one of the other spouses, Robert Minerou, and he's married to Tina, Mrs. Nico and Amy's parents, who is a kind of a tech innovator CEO. She's this real tough, empowered, definitely an empowered woman herself. She's kind of cold, but then she tries to warm up to him and he's standoffish. And you keep thinking, why is he turning down her advances? <laughs> you know, but it's because of course he's having that affair with Janet Stein. Yeah. And it's interesting when we think about these parents, because on the one hand, they're really compelling characters, but it's difficult to say that you like any of them. Still, that scene when they're at the restaurant, you know, Tina and Robert and and she, you know, hey, I booked the hotel room and, <laughs> and and he just rebuffs her advances and then leaves the restaurant. It's pretty heartbreaking. I mean, as much as we dislike her at this point, still, she's a human being. Well, we think she's a human being. <laughs> yeah. Who knows at this point? But it's just such an interesting dynamic. Of course, the fact that we have these first two episodes being mirrored, where we see the kid's point of view in episode one, and then the parent's point of view in episode two, was just a really cool storytelling device. And of course, it shows that we'll be seeing two sets of stories throughout the series, the parent's story and the kid's story. And it just creates a nice little uh, symmetry and also different side plots that they they can explore. And also the fact that there's mistrust within the pride and perhaps even some difference of opinions among the kids. The fact that, you know, these are not unified teams by any stretch because of course, Dale and Stacy were going to run off to Mexico. We saw that once they made their money off of that serum and Jeffrey thinks that Molly's parents were killed. Molly is of course the adopted child, but her parents died under mysterious circumstances. And Jeffrey obviously suspects one of his fellow members of the pride. So definitely mistrust there and kind of mirroring that is the mistrust along among the kids. You've got Carolina and Gert thinking their parents may be innocent and trying to prove that. Whereas you have Alex and Nico going to the police to turn them in for the murder of this uh, runaway convert that came to the church of Gibarim named destiny, who was the victim that they actually saw during the ceremony. And they even think that maybe Amy was a victim of, their parents' sacrificial rights. Right. Now, how great is that scene when they realize that their parents are apparently in with the police as well? So what's the point of turning them in? Exactly. So, But it, it just proves that the kids aren't always going to agree. The parents aren't always going to agree. So it creates these interesting dynamics. And this is where I started to think, these Gossip Girl producers maybe really know how it's done because you've got relationship dynamics that aren't contrived the way they are in maybe some DC shows that I think sometimes get a little bit overly dramatic because you've got, you know, Gert likes Chase, but Chase likes Carolina, but Carolina appears to like Nico and Alex and Nico have something going on between the two of them. And none of it is forced. You know what I mean? Is it bad that I've seen gossip girl season one? (laughs) Maybe a little, (laughs) no, that's fine. (laughs) But I really enjoyed how it took until episode five to really see the supergroup in action because it wasn't exposition heavy, but there was a lot of story to tell. 
And I think they did a good job of holding off, just teasing us a little with Molly's super strength before we got to see the team in action, minus the dinosaur. (laughs) And one of the big mysteries that I'm wondering about is why Jeffrey Wilder reneged on his deal with his friend Darius. They seem to be pretty friendly in prison. Darius, you know, turns out to be a pretty despicable guy, but in prison, he seemed to really, you know, have love for his brother. Yeah, yeah. And, and willing to take a dime for him. <laughs> right. And, you know, he says, well, you know, when he turned his turf over to me, business was good, but, you know, there's an economic depression, I guess, in drug dealing. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought that was. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That I would sympathize with Darius, even as he's kidnapping Alex. That was interesting. Um, but the big question also is this Jonah guy that they've refreshed and revived finally by uh, getting a victim into the little coffin thing. So now that Jonah's here, what's his goal? And did you get the impression that maybe he might have something to do with that family in general? Maybe even be the grandfather who painted that angel figure on the wall? Which would make him Leslie's father, right? Which would be really creepy. (laughs) Which would be, I mean, absolutely. Which also brings up the question, we've seen them put the body of the teenage sacrifice in one of those chambers, then they open it up and the body's gone. What's up yeah. with that? I guess the life force was sucked from that victim. I don't whatever. I don't know. And and used to revive this aging husk. And how old is is Jonah? As a result, is he some sort of, you know, immortal person because of the treatments he's been getting? And why is this the last treatment that he needs? Cuz it seems like they've been doing it for 15 years. So, you know, how come this is the final one? Because they characterized it that way. And of course, you brought up the time machine at the very end. We do see, even though they don't see, that the time machine does see a future vision of Los Angeles and the buildings are kind of falling apart and being destroyed. I was shocked. What are they going to do? (laughs) Post-apocalyptic? Come on. (laughs) So do they have to avoid that apocalyptic future? And I even thought the time machine, even being brought up earlier in the season, made me think a couple of times that did we see some time travel changes being put into action. Like there was one time when Alex was about to get caught by his father sneaking into the underground chamber. He couldn't get the doors closed yet. When he comes back, the doors are closed. Right. So I'm thinking is there time travel intervention there? And also there was a time when spike brought (laughs) a victim in a van 
And then the victim was just not in the van anymore. And there was no explanation for why she disappeared. So I just think it might be cool if we get to see some time travel, although they say it can only be done to the future, whether or not we might have already seen some time travel in evidence. So you know how I'm a sucker for time travel. So that that would be fun. (laughs) Continuity errors or time travel. (laughs) Or time travel, right? So really enjoying Runaways. Can't wait to see how it ends up in the final five episodes of the season. And I know plenty of our listeners have chimed in and said that they're really enjoying Runaways too. So hopefully you get a chance to look at it. If you haven't already, check it out on Hulu. There's time to get caught up, of course. All right. Well, the second show we're going to talk about is, of course, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which has returned for its fifth season premiered on December 1st, 2017 in a new time slot, Friday night at 9 p.m. And I know there's a lot of talk out there that ABC just wants to kill it. They put it on Friday night. Well, come on. If you've been paying attention, none of that matters because if Disney and ABC want this show to go on, it's going to go on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think what they realize is that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., does really well in the live plus three and the live plus seven. And again, they're not losing money on it. Right. They're not losing money on it. And time shifted audiences make it irrelevant that it's on Friday. Right. So we've only got one episode to talk about, but it was a huge episode because of all the shows that claim to reinvent themselves. I think shield does it better than most maybe i don't know because there's probably a show out there that maybe did it better than shield but i really can't think of it offhand yeah well and i think that's remarkable that you and i obviously podcast about shield but even if we didn't we would still be watching it and you watch some comic book shows sci-fi fidelity doesn't really cover comic book shows first of all because it's almost its own subgenre nowadays anyway but also because it's really not my thing personally and yet I love Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I love Marvel's Runaways. I've loved a lot of the sort of tangentially uh, related shows like Preacher and uh, Legion, you know, ones that don't necessarily dive in full board. The Gifted, which we talked about last month. So Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. seems to be in that vein as well, where you can enjoy it even if you're not a comic book fan. And the fact that it reinvents itself, especially this season, if it was not a science fiction show before, it certainly has become one in this season as it heads to space. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it picks up where season four left off in Ray's Diner. And in a departure from what they've done in the past, they released the first 17 minutes of this episode. I don't know. What was it? About a week and a half, two weeks early. Yeah. So it was available everywhere. And I think most of us watched it. And it was so disorienting not only for the viewer but also for the characters which made it that much cooler but i want to talk about this opening scene a little bit because it opens with talking heads this must be the place playing over top as we watch this bald guy who we don't know and he's certainly unusual looking going through his morning routine which includes a swim in his pool opens his refrigerator, but the only thing that's in it are bottles of coconut water. Yeah. (laughs) Then we see him running a shower and he peels off his human skin. And it's clear that this is some sort of an alien posing as human. So 
this is not something we've seen before. Okay, fine. You know, we know there are aliens in the Marvel universe, but still. Then we go to Ray's diner and we see the whole scene when Coulson and the team are abducted from a different angle. Yeah, and this was the season finale scene of season four. So it's, like you said, it's replaying something we've seen from a completely unfamiliar perspective. (laughs) Yeah, so we see the assault team go in and and we see this bald guy that we saw earlier. He's leading the team, which makes us wonder whether or not his soldiers are aliens as well. I tend to think not, but who knows? And we get the detail that there was one person that was left in the diner because he's not on the list. And, you know, we come to find out that that is Fitz. Why not Fitz? Yeah. So many mysteries right at the very beginning. Right. So, okay, fine. So we knew they were abducted. So now we see them, the team minus Fitz is in this room with a white monolith. It's got these uh, red horizontal lines on it, and it turns out to be a transporter, but only in time, not space, as opposed to the original version one of the monolith, if you will, which transported them to uh, Mavith for one. Well, yeah, it was just a a travel in, in space for that one in season three. So it took some elements that were familiar, such as the monolith. So we had a context for what was going on. But I'll tell you, if if you had asked me in the season finale who this mysterious group was that was in the shadows that said the windows open only for a short time, I would have guessed it was S.W.O.R.D., another government organization that's based on the moon in the comics. Not an alien that is going to send them through time to Earth's future, because why? <laughs> why would the alien do that? What's his agenda? Who are the people working with him? And did they place... Colson and his team in this situation for a specific reason, because it seems to have been predicted by those, or by some people anyway, in the future that they would arrive. Right. And that's what happens, that they are in orbit, I guess, around what is left of the Earth, so that the Earth has been destroyed. There's, I don't know, what, what would you say, about 20% of it left? Yeah, just sort of a shell. Right. And we're wondering, all right, is this some sort of an alternate timeline or is this uh, multiple timelines, multiple universes? We're, we're still not sure what it is at this point, but the first person they meet is this guy, Virgil, who immediately recognizes Agent Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's come to save us. So, okay. And at this point, we don't necessarily know we're in the future, we're disoriented like the S.H.I.E.L.D. team is as well. Well, it seems to me as the episode unfolds, it makes me wonder, is this season going to be all about preventing this catastrophic future that they are currently in? And if so, how are they supposed to go about doing that? Because really, this episode seems to be all about surviving and acclimating to this new environment that they've come into, which is you know, not just a bunch of humans on a space station. There's a completely different social dynamic going on. (laughs) Right. And so certainly their arrival has been expected. 
By some, by some. By yeah. some, I- exactly. And we, we find out that, you know, you mentioned cult when we were talking about <laughs> yeah. uh, runaways, and that's how Virgil and his ilk, and it appears Virgil is one of the last. Yeah, if not the last. If not the last of the true believers. And unfortunately, Virgil's not around for very long, but we are introduced to this character named Deke, who's played by Jeff Ward, who you might know from Channel Zero. And he has apparently been hired to, what, protect them? No, I think mostly his job was going to be to get them their metrics, which are wrist implants that are required for survival in this future, so that they can blend in. So his sole job was to help them blend in. Right. And his whole attitude is, whoa, wait a minute, I wasn't paid to do that. And... Ah, oh, fine, if I have to. And and again, I love this type of character, and, and it appears he's going to be with us for a while, which is great because, I don't know about you, I immediately liked him. There's just something about him. He's got this magnetism about him. That, that he's just scrappy. <laughs> that just draws you to him. And then we learn what his true calling has been is that he's apparently reconstructed the framework from fragments, which is another big reveal that we learn is that basically Earth's digital history has been erased and that what people like Virgil have done and apparently Deke to a certain extent, they've just tried to grab as many of these little bits and pieces and put them together and make sense out of them as they can. So he's reconstructed the framework and is using it as a pleasure palace. Right. And as the discussion went along, because this episode now has aired a week ago, and as discussion has blossomed on the internet, it seems to me that they could use that framework to maybe communicate with a version of Fitz that maybe he placed inside that framework so that he can guide them. Because we talked about how Fitz was left behind. And certainly there are signs that he knows exactly what happened to them because he's able to leave them a note that says working on it, <laughs> right, which is this old battered postcard that you would buy at the ocean. And we certainly are trying to figure out how is Fitz going to play into this scenario. And, and as you said, that that's, I didn't think of that. That's, that's great and entirely likely, but what we also learn is that the Cree are administering this space station, which was apparently originally built by humans. Yeah, well, apparently it was, and this is another thing that came up in the week since we podcasted about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on our Sandbox podcast. It wasn't even a space station. It was a underground bunker that ended up in space because of the destruction of Earth. So, yeah, it was built by humans is what you were about to say. Okay. But it's orbiting, right? I mean, it's in yeah, orbit. Yeah. I mean, it, it maybe originally was a... <laughs> yeah. Now it's a space station. <laughs> right. And for all intents and purposes, and again, maybe you know you know, more than I do, but this is the last of the human race on board this ship. Yeah. And that's pretty important. What's also important is that the word has been disseminated that the earth was actually destroyed by none other than Daisy Johnson, AKA quake. And that's something that I think most people by the end of this first episode have decided, nah, that's not possible. 
Well, especially since they introduced the idea very early that the Cree have destroyed historical records. So how can we really believe right. what people have heard about history? It can either be propaganda or just misinformation. Right. Now, you know, I mentioned Deke, who's you know, certainly a pretty cool character, but Cassius, who is the Cree warden that we're introduced to, who is obsessed with beauty and perfection, played by Dominic Reigns, who had a small part in Winter Soldier. I think if you blinked, you missed him. But <laughs> where he becomes important is that Simmons, look, I understand Simmons, see somebody in distress, she wants to help him. But at this point, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s team needs to really stay below the radar until they figure out what the heck is going on. And she knew that. And she knew that. It seemed reckless, didn't it? So she sees this guy get shot, immediately goes to his aid and talks about having the wound cauterized. She ends up saving this guy's life. And it turns out that he is the servitor of Cassius. So yeah, the, the favorite servitor, <laughs> right? The favorite. And he is a beautiful human being who is now flawed. And we're introduced to the harsh conditions that apparently both sides live under Cree and human. Right. If something's not perfect or it doesn't contribute to the small enclosed society, then it's clipped. It's trimmed like the vine that Cassius keeps in his chambers. Right. So this servitor is out. Simmons is apparently in. And Simmons being in as his new servitor includes a face painting. I don't know what else to call it. It looked pretty yep. darn cool, though. I, I, I like the look. And in addition to that, a nice new robe and some silver goo in your ear that only allows you to hear your master when he wishes it. Right. So the team is splintering. Uh, obviously, we've got Fitz in the past, 2017. Now Simmons is with Cassius as his servitor and Colson still trying to figure out what's going on. We, we've got Mac and, and Yo-Yo and Daisy and May, but they're still trying to get their bearings. Well, and, the, and I guess the main thing with them is that in all the hubbub, they actually have to get their metrics installed under duress and therefore have to place themselves in the care of an underground criminal boss who doesn't necessarily have their best interests in mind. And now they're beholden to him because he helped them escape detection. Right. So, you know, we get to the end of the episode. Where are they? Well, we assume they're orbiting what's left of Earth or, you know, maybe not orbiting anything, just floating out in space. We don't know when they are. What's the purpose of the Cree? keeping these humans alive. You know, th there must be an end game for the Cree. The humans on board are really just trying to make the best of a bad situation. But we go back to Virgil, who we meet at the first of the episode, Agent Colson of S.H.I.E.L.D., you've come to save us. So is there some sort of prophecy at work? Is there, you know, something that he knows from the future? There's a lot there. They throw a lot at us, disoriented for the first half of the two-hour episode. But as we get our bearings, I'm, I'm just really loving it. Yeah, it's just so interesting because you and I are 
lovers of science fiction. And so for us, having Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. shift into this space drama where they might be seeking to undestroy Earth somehow, I guess that's their main goal now, we're fine with it. But some people who enjoy the dynamics of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on the ground and, and tying into the comics that they already know might be a little bit like, what's going on here? So I can't wait to see where they take it. Is it going to stay a science fiction space show or are we going to get some of the magic of what we know from S.H.I.E.L.D. on the ground, especially from the standpoint of whether or not we'll see Fitz? That's my main question is what will we see of what he's doing in the past and how much does he have to do with the prophecy, as you put it, that that they were supposed to save them? And again, in the closing scene of the premiere, who are the people who are visiting this outpost to begin with, because I think we've only scratched the surface in the two hour premiere and us talking about it on this podcast is really only just seeing the introduction to what's about to happen. 21 episodes to go. That's right. Or No, 20. And they're pretty much going to go back to back. They're going to skip one episode here uh, near New Year's Eve. But other than that, it's just going to barrel straight on through till May. <laughs> so some great shows to enjoy here in the end of the year. And uh, I hope you're enjoying the ones that we're talking about. We definitely have some great ones coming up as well. And we also have some great interviews. We've even got some in the can, which I'm excited to share with you uh, about what we've got coming up. But today's interview is a really great one because it comes from a show that Dave has podcasted about and really is is a show that's near and dear to our hearts, not the least of which is I Am a Librarian, and that's The Librarians. And we got to talk to Lindy Booth, who is a Canadian actress who got her start as a teenager starring in several different Disney Channel movies and series. And she's been in two of the shows. This is the tie-in I mentioned at the top. She's actually been in two of the shows that we discussed in our discussion topic. She did guest turns on The 4400 and on Mutant X, interestingly enough. And now she's known by fans of TNT's The Librarians as the super intelligent Cassandra Killian. And her character has big changes in store for season four because the source of her special skills may be in question. Is that right, Dave? <laughs> it is right. And and that's certainly one of the things that she'll talk about. All right. So let's go ahead and listen to our interview with Lindy Booth. Thank you, Lindy Booth, for joining us on the December edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great as well. All right. So season four of The Librarians is going to be returning to TNT on Wednesday, December 13th, which turns out to be a week earlier than originally announced, which, of course, makes the fans happy. Uh, <laughs> do you do anything special when the show airs, watch with friends, live tweet, anything like that? Oh, yeah. Actually, I watch with my favorite friends. I watch with the cast of The Librarians. Um, we're actually all getting together at Dean Dublin's Electric Entertainment offices. We're going to be doing a Facebook Live thing. Is that something you really enjoy, the social media aspect of it? Yeah, you know, I enjoy the social social media aspect of it. I think the most fun we have live tweeting is when we're all together as a group because we sort of like egg each other on and we remember things like sort of as we're watching, we're remembering things. So we're all sort of tweeting about our common sort of remembrances of our time shooting and I think it makes it more fun. And also just interacting with the fans is so amazing. You know, the fans of the librarians are so loyal and intense and have so many questions and so many, they're so curious about 
invested in what happens with these characters. It's really fun to be involved and and get to uh, get to share the event with them. Well, cool. You know, the tagline on your Twitter account is a perfect lead in for my first question, which is I play dress up for a living. So I want to get this question out of the way because my wife will kill me if I don't ask about Cassandra's cute outfits. Thank you. So what's the process for choosing your clothes for each episode? And do you get input each week with the wardrobe department? Yeah. So our wardrobe designer, Critter Pierce, is an extraordinarily creative woman. And she it's been one of the great pleasures of my career working with her because I love clothes and I love telling a story through wardrobe and critters works very much the same way I do, which at the beginning of the year, we sort of sit down and we talk about Cassandra and where she is in life and what's going on. And I think people have this idea of who this character is. And I think if you go back to the beginning of the series and you actually look at who she was and what she was wearing, it's completely different. And that's all been planned out. We've sort of arced out the entire character through color and through, even like sleeve length in the first season, she was wearing long sleeves that covered her hands because she was hiding from something. And now, you know, she's much brighter and bolder and colorful. And we just have a great time sort of like telling a story through the clothes and through different patterns and playing and having no rules in our wardrobe fittings. You know, we'll take a skirt and say, Oh, we like the ruffle on this. Maybe we could put this on a shirt. Oh, this hairband is amazing. Wouldn't it be great if we got two of them and made a belt out of it? It's no rules, and the wildest things get thrown out there. It's a really creative and fun environment. We have an amazing seamstress, Jacqueline, who really just <laughs> gets saddled with all these crazy whims that we have, and she's constantly you know, coming up with ideas of how to attach one thing to another thing and make it into something else. So it's an amazing process, and I do have a lot of input in it, and, and it's been really fun for all of us, I think. Now, obviously, one of the big changes in last season was Cassandra had the tumor removed. Do you think that'll have any impact on wardrobe choices? Will that change her style at all? You know, I think it changes a lot about her. We see sort of mid-season, she something about the tumor being removed has caused Cassandra to sort of question everything, questions who she wants to be. And I think, you know, one of the big arcs of this season is something happens that causes all of us to sort of question the library itself and question our commitment to it. And, you know, that's a big moment and that's a big change. And this is for Cassandra, you know, the library has been the one thing she's always had since she got there. It sort of gave her life again. And once the tumor was removed, she now sort of has this new lease on life. And so once she starts questioning the library, it really becomes this bigger sort of question of like, who do I want to be? And so, yeah, we do see a big change in Cassandra sort of midway through the season where she's really questioning her lot in life. I mean, certainly one of the fears of removing the tumor was that she was going to lose her abilities, which of course is not what happened. So now with her increased powers, I mean, it would seem she faces a different set of challenges, one of which might be one of control. Yeah, I mean, that, that's been a huge thing, and it is something that she grapples with is how to control this. You know, it's that Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility sort of adage, and it's, it's really true here. She does have this enormous 
gift and and how does she use it and can she control it and is it really who she wants to be does she really want to define herself by this because I think with the tumor being removed you know she's always said and I think it's been a very powerful message that she knows how she's going to die so she doesn't fear death well now she doesn't now her worst fear is not going to happen and we see a very interesting sort of switch with her. I think it goes back and forth this season between that feeling very empowering and her feeling very fearless. She's already faced death. Now this is her second act and nothing can hurt her. Now she's, she can die and she doesn't know how she's going to die. And so I think that she goes through another sort of wave of like fear in the not knowing. Right. Which brings up the connection that she forms with Jenkins at the end of the season where, you know, we're wondering, is it romantic? Is it platonic? She, he's a little bit older than her, but <laughs> does it have more to do with, as you say, she's got her own mortality now to consider in a different way. Yeah. You know, this has always been that, that relationship with Jenkins has always been one of my favorite in the show. It's so special and it's so unique. And I think it is so undefined. And I think that's what makes it so interesting because I don't think, relationships are just one thing or the other their relationship is so sweet so caring and it comes from such a strange and different place so yeah her questioning of mortality is actually going to come into play in a big way this year and and i think you know she brings jenkins into that and that's always the two of them have this unique bond in that way where where they they look at their mortality in a different way than other people do now She's always been fascinated by math and science, obviously, throughout the run of the show. What is it about magic that appeals to her so much? Well, I think I think the fact that, you know, we introduced this concept of like mathematics and this combination of math and magic. And I think for someone who thought they were dying and who was was living with this terrible illness, the magic sort of represented hope and it, it, it's this sort of whimsy, you know, it's like her belief in Santa Claus. It, it's wild and childlike and innocent and it's fun. And I think her whole belief system is so joyous and so childlike and so full of curiosity that when the concept of magic, that it's real is presented to her, she just latches onto it because I mean, you and me, like if someone came and told me that all of that stuff was actually real and actually happening, I mean, I'd just be over the moon excited about it. Like, I just want to know everything about it because it's amazing. <laughs> because if all of those things that we've been told weren't true were actually all of a sudden true, I mean, that would just be the most amazing thing in the world. And I think that's where her fascination comes from. Just like pure curiosity and innocence and, and belief and wanting to believe in something. Okay. Now, how would Cassandra react to Eve telling her that she needs to learn how to physically defend herself? Would she be on board or try to talk her out of it? Oh, yeah. No, I think she'd totally be on board. It's funny that that hasn't really come up. I mean, we've seen her start to get a little bit more physical and a little bit more involved. But for some reason, that this, this has not happened. I personally, as Lindy, would love it because I actually am significantly more physical than Cassandra is. So I feel like every time they throw a punch in there for me, everyone's always like, wow, you're really good at that. And I'm like, yes, let me fight. 
Oh, you could uh, get into one of Jake's barroom fights, which undoubtedly (laughs) uh, will occur somewhere down the road. Uh, A year or so ago, I stumbled on a show that I somehow missed when it originally aired. And this is, of course, the time travel tale Odyssey 5. Oh, yeah. Where you played Holly Culverson, uh, Neil's girlfriend, who not necessarily evil, but she was kind of a bad girl. What's it like playing a bad girl? Because obviously we don't see you in that role very often. You know, I oddly started out my career only playing bad girls. I think I went, that's not true. I started playing nice girls and then I went very bad very quickly for a long time. And I played a lot of, I killed a lot of people on TV and in movies. I I had a real string of like not being very nice on TV. Um, So I'm quite happy to be back playing a nice girl. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it's fun as an actor to be able to bounce back and forth and play a little bit of both and playing Cassandra is such a treat because she is so wide eyed and good and kind and loving. You know, there, there is so much about her that's just so pure and, and it's been, it's been a challenge to, to play all of that wide eyedness, but it's my favorite part of myself. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun to bring out. All right. Well, you got two movies that are set to release uh, shortly, Rocky Mountain Christmas yeah. and The Creatress, which they seem pretty different. I mean, what can you tell us about either or both of these movies and the characters that you play? They are super different. You know, coming off of five months of shooting The Librarians, I was so tired and so happy and so on high of like this amazing experience that all I wanted to do was get back to work and do more work. And um an amazing experience to do this independent film called The Creatress. The script is one of the most interesting scripts that I've come across in the past like 10 years. I really fell in love with the story and the character. And it's about a young author who's become the voice of a generation. She's written one book that just blew everyone away and she's won all these awards. And now she's sort of facing her second act at the age of 28 and trying to reinvent herself and try to deal with fame and deal with art and deal with writing. And it's a real story about writers, which I love because I'm such a huge fan of all of the writers that I work with. And it's something that I definitely can't do. Um, so I, I'm constantly in awe of them. So it's fun to sort of delve into the world of a writer and, uh, and really um, experiment with that. And I got to work with Fran Drescher and Peter Bogdanovich, two amazing, amazing, wonderful people um, that I was super privileged to work with. And then on like the totally other side of the spectrum, I love doing Hallmark Christmas movies. It's a secret joy of mine. It's not so secret. Everybody knows that I do it all the time, but I love working on these movies because I do love Christmas so much. It's my favorite time of year. And I love the opportunity to play it for a full month before Christmas even happens. (laughs) And I shot this, this beautiful, sweet, lovely Christmas movie up in Vancouver last month, Christopher Palaha and Treat Williams that is just is so amazing and we got to spend the entire month on a farm riding horses and it was just it was beautiful and I'm so excited for it to come out I actually did ADR for it the other day and it's so sweet and I'm so excited for it so will, will there be any trash talking between you and Christian over whose Christmas movie is because uh, I know he's got one coming out as well oh yeah 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 it you know it's a constant competition for us we are uh, John, Christian, and I are like the brothers and sisters we play on the show. We are constantly trying to one-up each other and trash-talk each other and, of course, then constantly support each other. 
and love each other and, you know, push each other up. So I am very excited for Christian's Christmas movie as well. All right, cool. All right, last question. Last show that you binge watched. Last show that I binge watched. You know, I am a huge Master of None fan. So I just I just watched uh, the second season of that. I love it. I think Aziz Ansari is so funny and so genuine. And it's just the second season is like a whole other level. It's such a great show. Um, it, I was so happy. It, it exceeded my expectations from the first season. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you, Lindy, for meeting with us today on Sci-Fi Fidelity. Really appreciate your time. Wishing you success with Librarians Season 4 and beyond. And listeners, remember, Season 4 Librarians is going to air on December 13th on TNT. Lindy Booth, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I was so glad you got a chance to talk to Lindy. Uh, it was definitely uh, some of the characters from the Librarians that we've thought of for a long time and, and never thought we would have the opportunity to talk to. So that was really nice. And... Like I said, we hopefully will have another librarians, a bonus librarians interview to share with you soon from Christian Kane, and that's coming up in the future. So stay tuned for that. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion tonight. You can keep it going all month long and into 2018 by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in January, we're definitely taking a look at the second season of Netflix Travelers, but our other show topic hasn't been determined yet. We'll certainly let you know via social media. Don't forget about our upcoming Christian Kane interview and stay tuned for a very special guest from the X-Files next month. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future discussion topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send us an email at scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in 2018. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.